0: Hey, Merry Christmas. Uh welcome back, Legabosji. We are in part 2 of the cinematic deep dive review on Skodan Cinema. Uh, Powwow Highway is the movie that we're discussing uh, this episode. And if you're just uh, catching up or you're just tuning in for part two, um, the first part was kind of all about introducing the movie and, and some of the, the main um, actors and directors and writers and and that kind of thing. And then we kind of talked a little bit about the origin story of Protector and how um Philbert, it came into Philbert's hands. And one of the things I kind of forgot to mention was um, you know, Philbert traded uh, his cousin, uh, like some marijuana and some whiskey for it. But in the movie, um, he's the one that actually goes to the uh, junkyard t- to find it. And so that was kind of a little uh, bit of discrepancy between the, the novel and, and the movie. But uh, after they get Protector, uh, the story's kind of set up where uh, there's this uh, vote that's happening um, on the reservation concerning this corporation that is trying to strip mine the land um, of its resources. And the contract is up, and and the council's going to have to vote on it, and uh, you have kind of like this young hotshot, uh, aim warrior named Buddy Redbow, who is uh, you know carries just enough clout in the community to where he's able to probably sway the vote, and uh, you know he's kind of you know countering what the uh, uh, corporation, uh, Sandy Youngblood uh, representative is, is talking about. And you can kind of see in that council meeting that uh, at first, you know, it's pretty much been decided that, yeah, we're just going to push this through. They're going to sign it and, you know, and they're going to vote on it. No harm, no foul until Buddy kind of speaks up. And then you can kind of see the the mood shift. And uh, when he starts talking about how, you know, like uh, unemployment rates are, or haven't, you know, haven't gone, uh, down, they've actually gone up, and that 75% of the people living on the reservation live below the poverty line, you know. And he's talking about, you know, like who's really benefiting from, um, you know, this this contract, uh, us or you? And so then you can kind of see the the mood shift, and the elders are kind of shaking their head, agreeing with Buddy. So because of that, um, there's this big elaborate plan by the feds to set up his sister. Uh, down in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and she's been busted uh, with some pot in the back of her car. And the idea is that um, Buddy obviously is, is the only family that she has left, and that she he's gonna leave the reservation and go down and try to rescue her, which gives them this little window to be able to push this contract through to to the tribal council. Kind of like if him out of the way, they'll they'll vote on it, and then. Uh, you know, he's got this plan where he's going to, um, use some money that the uh, tribe has given him to purchase bulls. Um, he's going to take that money and go down to Santa Fe and bail out Bonnie and then, um, kind of use another check, uh, for, for, for the bulls. And it's kind of like this convoluted thing, but, uh, realizing that he doesn't have a ride, uh, Filbert, uh, pulls up and, um, kind of conveniently, and he sees this as an opportunity to get down to Santa Fe, so they're kind of make this this buddy movie, road trip movie, and uh, they pulled off and to get protector this you know am radio with a cb radio and anyway uh buddy thought that it was cheap or incorrectly installed and so he goes and he tears up the store and he's they're sort of chased out of town um and anyway so that's kind of where we're at in, in the story but uh, once that scene at the hi-fi hut dies down um, we're back on the, we're back on the road and buddy is crashed out and he's snoring loudly in the passenger seat And Philbert, you know, he's driving and he's looking kind of tired. And, you know, I think just to kind of keep himself awake, he he picks up the CB uh, radio and he starts talking into it. And, you know, nobody's replying back to it. So then he just kind of starts talking a little bit of Cheyenne uh, into it uh, to see if anybody's listening. And then he gets a hit. And the clip I'm getting ready to play is probably uh, one of my favorite scenes in the entire film.
1: Cheyenne. It's Philbert Bono riding Protector of the War Pony out of Lame Deer, Montana. ahead, Cola. Got a warrior name? It's, uh. Whirlwind Dreamer. But. I'm not yet worthy. What's your handle? Light Cloud, brother. Running an Gene Wheeler out of Sturgis, South Dakota. Like like the prophet. Right, man, nobody ever picks up on that. But well, they should. He's like Jesus to the Cheyenne.
2: Yeah,
1: I know what you're saying, but nobody cares about history these days. Well, I do. Well, the other night on Bonanza, Cheyenne chief, well, he was a white actor. That's, a, that's not where you learned about the prophet. No, my Uncle Fred. He told me about Light Cloud. He tell you about Nova Wuss? The Sacred Mountain where Lake Cloud got his power. Uncle Fred called it Sweet Butte. But I, I've never been there. Incredible, man. Most powerful spot in South Dakota. Maybe the world. You gotta go there, Cola. Just straight ahead in the sunrise. You can't miss it. Take <laughs> a hot nut and for driving
0: sick. To- hey, light cloud. Light cloud. Yeah, that voice coming through the CB radio. Uh, You know, Light Cloud uh, is the voice of Floyd Red Crow Westerman, and um, he's another one of those, uh, this you know, iconic Native American actors. um, You know that he was in this, and then uh, he was in Renegades uh, in 1989. He was in uh, he played Ten Bears in uh, Dances with Wolves. He was the Indian shaman in the The Doors. Uh, He's in Clear Cut, and if you haven't seen Clear Cut, which we will talk about that one for sure. Uh, Do yourself a favor and check out uh, A Clear Cut with Graham Greene. But uh, he was also in um, uh, Northern Exposure um, is probably where most people will will remember him from. Uh, But again, he's been in a a ton of things, um, uh, Floyd Red Red Crow Westerman. But uh, when Filbert, you know, hears this, um, he he sees it as a sign. And, um, you know, Light Cloud uh, is... Kind of surprised that that Philbert recognizes the name, um, especially as a prophet. And again, uh, Seals is, is very, very knowledgeable in his writing because um, all of the stuff is, is based um, on stories, uh, Cheyenne stories. But uh, this scene is absolutely packed with all kinds of meaning. And again, you have to credit this uh, 100% to to Gary Farmer because he does such a spotless job conveying all the multi layered issues, um, you know, kind of plaguing Indian country. This scene and and, and just the topic of the conversation um, is still relevant today. I mean, um, there's the fact that many natives kind of have moved away from the, the old ways, uh, the old stories um, and, you know, uh, obvious references to history, uh, you know, in, in that scene. If, if you could could hear it. Uh, Phil said something about, you know, um, seeing a Cheyenne chief on Bonanza. And uh, it's kind of funny because he just kind of notes that. Uh, but if he's played by a white guy, uh, Light Cloud uh, responds with Bonanza like, oh, that's not where you learn about Light Cloud. And, you know, Phil says, like, no, I, I, I heard about him from my uncle Fred. And uh, the beneficent trucker sort of assumes that Filbert is, uh, you know, uh, learning history from just watching shows on television. And he's kind of pleased that when, he, when it's revealed that he's not, um, you know. And I got to be honest with you. And I think I told you in episode one, that's kind of where I learned a lot about, my, you know, what I thought was my my tribal history was through television and and movies and and you know comics and things like that. But anyway, uh, uh, the trucker and Philbert they talk about Light Cloud and his connection to Sweet Butte, um, where he had his vision. And Light Cloud tells them like, well, you got to go see it, man. You got to go there and see it. It's beautiful. Uh, it's the, one of the most powerful places on earth and so when that happens you can kind of hear um, him kind of lose uh, the, the the signal and Filbert's um, trying to like you know get more out of him but uh, like I said Filbert sees this as a sign and the scene ends kind of with Filbert passing um, I-25 south exit and he kind of you know has to make the the uh, decision you know do, do I continue south towards Denver and then on to Santa Fe, or do I go north towards the Black Hills of South Dakota? Well, Filbert being Filbert, um, is obviously going to choose the way, uh, or the path of the warrior, and so he, at the last minute, he veers the car, a sharp right turn, and, you know, he heads, uh, uh, north, uh, to South Dakota. So the next morning, um, we see Protector is parked in front the uh, at the foot of the uh, Bear Butte Mountain. And Filbert is extra quiet as he exits the car uh, because he doesn't want to wake up Buddy who's still asleep. Uh, he heads up the, the real steep trail and he finds this old sweat lodge um, with several pieces of like uh, uh, prayer ties. Well, it's red fabric, but prayer ties. And they're, they're tied to the tree limbs. And he, he crawls inside the lodge and he sits cross-legged, um, I have to say Indian style because that's, that's what it's called or referred to. And he kind of leans his head back and he inhales deeply and slowly and he's sort of, you know, kind of uh, controlling his breathing and he's, you know, trying, to, trying his best to have himself a vision. Uh, and that's when, yeah, he closes his eyes and he sees this warrior from the past and uh, the warrior um, it, or the Cheyenne is, you know, he's dressed in full like buckskin regalia and he presents an arrow to the meditating filbert. Uh, and then he just kind of suddenly opens his eyes and it's a coyote sort of sniffing around. And I want to take a moment to talk about that because it's not really fully explained um, who that that character, or excuse me, I shouldn't say character, um, who that, that Indian is in his vision. So if you thought you were going to just get the deep dive review on Pow Wow Highway on and Cinema without a history lesson, uh, I'm so sorry, I, I hate to disappoint you, but uh, I'm going to read from the book uh, Pow Wow Highway from David Seals, and like I said earlier, um, Seals is very knowledgeable in his uh, you know, uh, native history because the, the uh, legend of uh, Sweet Medicine is based on old Cheyenne stories, but there was once a savior named Sweet Medicine who came to the prairie people many centuries ago beyond time. Before sweet medicine came, the Cheyenne were indeed savages, living without law and killing one another. It was said that a god named Sweet Roots came to a young maiden in her sleep for four nights in a row, and in the end, the dream had made her pregnant. Her parents were ashamed and sent her out of the village. No one helped her when she had a baby boy beside a creek. After it was finished, she made a shelter of driftwood and left the baby boy behind and went home. An old woman soon found the baby, wrapped it up, and took it home with her. She went into her hut, and she said, Old man, I found a baby boy that somebody throwed away. And the old man got up praising and was happy. And he put his hands up kind of thankful, and he said, For some reason, that's our grandson, and his name shall be Sweet Medicine. Oh, those old blanket skins, Filbert thought, smiling again pleasantly. They had a way with words. That crazy old Sweet Medicine performed all kinds of miracles, too. He made a hoop out of an old calfskin hide once, and when there was a famine on the prairie and shot an arrow into the hoop, it turned into a buffalo with an arrow in it, and it fell over and died, and everybody had all they could eat. They probably ate it raw, Filbert thought. Another time, Sweet Medicine shot an arrow at a beautiful red duck, and the duck flew away with the arrow. Sweet Medicine followed it for four days over many miles, and finally wrangled it away from the duck, which had been captured by a medicine man, who was really an old woman, who killed the duck, but not really. On his way home, Sweet Medicine was tired of walking, and this was way before horses, and they couldn't ride dogs around very well, so everybody walked. And he put the arrow into his bow, and he shot it toward the north, the direction from which he had come. It disappeared from sight, but when it struck the ground he was standing right beside it. Then he pulled it out again and he shot it again and again and it carried him for many miles. And he did it a third time and a fourth time. And then he was just a short distance from his own village. And he returned to the village in this way and he kept the arrow with him there among the people. Sweet Madison had been exiled from the tribe for arguing with an old man once. And the soldiers who ruled the tribe at that time came after him But his grandmother tipped her soup into the fire in their lodge, and it made an explosion, and ashes and steam and sweet medicine flew up through the hole in the top. When the soldiers came in to catch him, he was gone. In a moment, someone saw him on a ridge beyond the village, so they all ran after him. His body was painted, and a stringless bow was in his hand, and feathers were on his head. His dress later became that of the Fox Society. But when the soldiers reached the top of the valley, this time he was carrying an elk horn with a crooked-ended spear wrapped in otter skin and hung with four eagle feathers, the insignia of the Elk Society. Sweet medicine signaled them to come on, and they ran after him. But again he disappeared, and he was seen again on the next ridge wearing feathers in his hair and painted red, the insignia of the Red Shield Society and they tried to reach him again, but he vanished a fourth time, appearing again this time with a rawhide rope at the side of a belt and a donut-shaped rattle decorated with feathers in his hand. He had become a dog soldier. The fifth time, he had a buffalo rope and a sacred pipe and one eagle feather stuck through the braided lock of his hair. He had become the first Cheyenne chief. After that, he was never seen again. It had been a busy day, and the soldiers searched the entire country trying to find and punish him for showing off so much. But he was gone, and he did not come back for four years. Yep, old Sweet Medicine was a heavy bro. He had been called by some great power to the Black Hills country, just as Filbert felt himself sucked toward that eerie place. Sweet Medicine found a place there like a big teepee, where old women were sitting along one side... And old men along the other. But they were not really people, they were gods. And Sweet Medicine saw four arrows there, which were to become the four sacred arrow- arrows of the Cheyenne. And what he had once thought a teepee was actually a cave. It was a very big cave in the mountain where all the secrets of the earth were kept. And old Sweet Medicine had found him some sweet grass and stumbled in there and heard the mysteries of meat and grain and blood and sky explained but not explained in definitions or descriptions, but in visions and rituals. He was a heavy bro after all, maybe a sorcerer. Anyway, the old ones around that, uh, around that cave called him a uh, grandson and began instructing him in many things that he should take back to the people. They taught him first about the arrows because they were the highest power in the tribe. Two were for hunting and two were for war. Many ceremonies were connected with him and they stood for many laws. He was taught the ceremonies of renewing the arrows which must take place if one Cheyenne ever killed another. The arrows had to be kept by a special warrior and a sacred teepee covered at all times unless the arrow ceremony was underway. He learned next that he was to give the people a good government with 44 chiefs to manage it and a good system of police and military protection organized in four societies that he had already established. Much more to learn besides these things that he was there for most of the four years. And then he sent forth to carry the laws to the people. One of the old ones came out before him, burning sweet grass as incense to purify the air for the arrow bundle. He had to be cool with that, for it was really heavy stuff like the Ten Commandments. With it in his arms, he started for home and established the Cheyenne religion and culture and the whole trip. Medicine men made endless commentaries and interpretations of the sweet medicine's law over the centuries, and it was a real source of unity to his descendants. They wandered and split up into bands and were forced out by other invaders and vaporized like they were skunk juice, but they just kept coming back stronger and stronger every time. Okay, yeah, I'll I'll stop right there because um, there's a little bit more to that story, but um, you kind of get the gist of it. So I thought it was important, though, because in the vision um, in the sweat lodge uh, Filbert has – the, I'm assuming the, the warrior is sweet medicine and he gives him one of the four sacred arrows he kind of presents it to him so like I said um, after that happens he sort of you know wakes up and, and then just sees this coyote kind of sniffing around um, then he kind of scampers out uh, of the lodge and he, Philbert starts proceeding higher up in the mountain and then um, in one of the film's most memorable scenes he finally reaches like the pinnacle of what Light Cloud described as the most sacred Place on Earth, and he stands. He's so proud of himself um, atop this mountain, and he's kind of looking out over just this amazing, majestic landscape. Uh, he kind of sits down, and, and uh, he's going to have himself a snack. And he pulls a king-size Hershey bar out of, of his jacket pocket, and he kind of unwraps it. And just as he's getting ready to take a big bite out of it, he changes his mind because he kind of looks up and he sees all of these colorful prayer ties and medicine bundles um, left there by other Indians and they're all you know kind of tied in the trees and then he kind of has this uh, again another light bulb moment you know thinking that he has nothing to offer uh, the mountain so um, the only thing he has is on him is, is the candy bar so he carefully rewraps it and he places it on top of the mountain and like I said the audience is treated to just this amazing shot of uh, a Hershey bar like embedded in the rock like Excalibur or something. Um like I said, something like it's the sanctified demigod, but behind it is just this gorgeous landscape um from atop that mountain. And uh the book the the scene is very different. And I'm not even going to tell you what Filbert does on top of the mountain. Um you'll have to read it in the book. But let me tell you something. It was a cringy read for me. Uh, yeah, moving on. <laughs> so uh, down below the mountain um, that Philbert's that standing on, Buddy is, is taking a leak. He's, he's relieving himself, and he's interrupted by this young couple who's kind of gone there to make out. And through conversation, he finds out that he's nowhere near Pueblo. Uh, in fact, um, he's at the base of the Black Hills in South Dakota, and he realizes that when he sees you know, kind of like this touristy sign, you know, um, on this building this this visitor center so uh before he has time to even think and realize like what's going on um you hear Philbert kind of uh playfully you know rolling down the side of the mountain um kind of yeehawing and like woo you know just having fun and i think just the fact that that he's enjoying himself so much um really angers buddy to to no end so he goes over there and confronts him and um you know there's a lot of conflict in this movie between um phil and buddy uh i gotta just say that in fact most of the conflict in the film occurs between those two characters but buddy is fuming and you know he's on a mission uh, of his own and he's like we have no time for this i got to get down there and save my sister but he tries to grab phil um as he's walking by you know like philbert like what's wrong with you Uh, And Filbert like quickly turns around and he picks him up off the ground and he says like, nobody grabs me anymore. And uh, it's true uh, because, you know, going up on that mountain, you know, Filbert has said the entire film that they're going to be gathering power and that he's no longer going to let anyone push him around. And um, it's kind of at this point that Buddy realizes, um, you know, the the shift in power is, is there's a shift of power kind of happening.
2: Holy <laughs> fuck. Filbert? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I You're supposed to be on the road to Santa Fe in case you forgot I got important shit coming down. Where are you
1: guys going?
2: Silver, we don't have time to fuck around. Nobody
1: grabs me no more. This is no awus, buddy. The most sacred place in America maybe the world we are gathering power hey do you know this thing where you going brothers power over in pine ridge power Mm -hmm. pine ridge tonight yeah
0: I love how the the tones of this film just kind of continue to shift back and forth. I mean, you have this really tense moment um, where Buddy and um, Phil are kind of confronting one another. And uh, it's broken uh, very lightheartedly just at the mention of a powwow, Christmas powwow at the Pine Ridge Reservation that night. And, uh, you know, Buddy's in a hurry, obviously, but he kind of begins to realize that this trip... It's kind of something special for Filbert, uh, you know, that it means more to him than, than just a trip to, to Santa Fe. So it's settled. Uh, Pine Ridge, powwow or bust? Uh, and again, the, kind of the, the beginning of the parallel between the two characters. You know, you have these two complete polar opposites um, that are on separate missions, um, but they're in the same car. But it's kind of at this point like the, they're kind of starting to, the stories are kind of starting to merge or their quests um, are beginning to merge into one. And um, even Phil kind of, you know, foreshadows this when he starts calling the quest, uh, referring to it as theirs. Um, and he also says that, uh, you know, like, we are gathering power. We are gathering medicine. And so it's not just um, about Buddy, that it's about uh, both of them. So next up, um, there's this quick little scene back at the Cheyenne Res uh, with Chief Joseph. And um, you're kind of corralling some some cattle uh, into his pens. And there's talk about Red Bow sort of maybe slipping town with the money. And um, the reason why I mention this is because John Trudell uh, is in this scene uh, just briefly. Uh, he plays Eddie Shorthair. But Chief Joseph uh, kind of vouches for Buddy, and there's, like, that line I was talking about where he says, you know, like, um, you might not uh, agree, but he's done more, you know, Buddy Redbow's done more for this tribe than anybody else. But um, you can kind of tell in the back of his head that the seed has been planted. Like, there's a little bit of doubt, like, did he possibly skip town with our money? um the scene then shifts and it cuts to this um sort of this uh, undisclosed federal building or maybe like this penitentiary i don't really know and um there's sandy youngblood remember that hot shot representative from the uh, overdine corporation and he's talking to a, a federal agent named jack novel and novel tells sandy you know like you got to get yourself under control you got to compose yourself um, that you have to trust us, that, that putting Bonnie Redbow behind bars was the best way to get you know, uh, Buddy off the reservation out of their hair for a while. Because remember, um, you know, they felt that he had enough clout uh, within the tribe to sort of rile the sentiment, um, you know, resulting in vetoing the contract that the company has. And Sandy becomes very frustrated, and, and he kind of you know, has defeat a uh, look of defeat on his face, and Novel tells him, you know, like, uh, you're underestimating uh, the influence that Buddy has.
3: Calm down, Sandy. Putting his sister behind
1: bars was our best shot. It's completely unnecessary. I covered it all with the tribe.
2: Environmental protection, sacred land issue, net profit participation.
1: Sandy, you're missing the point. redbow has got a bunch of radicals on the loose up there. We need him off that reservation until the vote is in.
2: You, you flew me all the way down from Montana to tell me this?
1: Bureau feels you underestimate Red Bull. Listen, Jack,
2: I really don't need the feds to do my job for me.
0: Yeah, so you can see that Sandy's uh, really out to try to prove something um, to the feds and maybe even to himself there. But back in Protector, uh, Buddy and Philbert are riding along in silence, saying the radio is kind of softly playing. And they drive under uh, Mount Rushmore, and Buddy starts to kind of recall a time in their youth... Um, when he used to pick on Filbert. So we kind of get like this um, flashback scene and Filbert um, is being, you know, kind of bullied about his weight um, by uh, sort of like a very young uh, Buddy and his friends. Uh, but the silence is kind of broken and Buddy asks Filbert, um, you know, like, what do you remember about growing up with us? And Filbert replies, you know, like, not much, just, you know, army playing army games and football. And uh, But he remembers Bonnie, and so we get another flashback to their youth. And this time, um, Filbert's crying. He's kind of on the ground, and he's crying because he just got picked on by Buddy. And Bonnie kind of comes over and gives him a banana, um, just kind of in this, uh, you know, kind of trying to comfort him. And, um, you know, it just it's very kind of touching to, to Filbert that she she reached out and did that for him. So uh, again, it's it's this moment in the film that the parallels between the two characters are even further solidified. um, Because in another powerful scene, um, Filbert and Buddy uh, pull off to the side of the road and it's about dusk. And Filbert doesn't say a a single word, he just gets out of the car and he kind of walks down this embankment and he starts wading into this knee-high, frigid, running stream. And uh, at first, you know, Buddy's kind of hollering at him like, come on, man. Like, we ain't got time for this. And, uh, you know, Philbert's not even paying any attention to to all the fussing that, that Buddy's doing. But anyway, he sort of wades into this this uh, knee-high running river. And he just starts facing the sun. And it's beginning to set. And he just kind of s- starts singing very softly. And the scene goes on for probably solid two minutes of him just standing there singing. And then before you know it, um, Buddy just joins him. He just kind of all of a sudden kind of saddles up beside him. And he's kind of, you know, kind of mouthing the words at first, uh, but I guess just kind of overcome by the power of the moment. Buddy starts singing. And, you know, um, this music is a part of their culture. And people like Buddy have been fighting to hold on to that culture, you know, their entire life. But. Uh, but it, you know, and, and Philbert's constantly reminding him of this, like we are Cheyenne, we're Cheyenne, you know, just trying to you know say like you know be proud of, of being Cheyenne. Um, you know, Phil asserting that tribal kinship outweighs any, any individual purpose that, that at this point that Buddy's on. And the scene closes as the two friends um, are just standing in the stream together, uh, facing this beautiful setting sun, just singing old Cheyenne songs. Hi-ya, hi-ya. Yeah, that little pause that you heard is the moment when Buddy um, walks up next to him um, because Philbert's got his eyes closed and then he kind of feels his presence and he kind of looks over at him and seems very surprised that that Buddy chose to join him in that moment. But after this really emotional scene in the river takes place, uh, Buddy and Philbert are back in the car. And um, before he slides behind the wheel, though, Philbert plops himself down on the hood of the car and he takes off his boots and he pours the water out as he does this this little small flat stone falls into the palm of his hand and he joyfully exclaims um like my first token it's good medicine and buddy tells him that you know like we got to get out of these wet clothes before they get sick i mean he's literally like shivering and i feel the scene is based a lot in reality because you see their breath and um you know a martinez he's really kind of struggling to get these lines out because he is he is like um shivering um really intensely um, but he tells, uh, Phil like, Hey, I got an old army buddy that lives up in Pine Ridge and we can probably, you know, get some warm clothes and, you know, maybe a, a meal with him. So of course, uh, when Buddy says Pine Ridge that immediately triggers Phil's brain into remembering, um, the Christmas powwow. So they pull up to, um, the front door of this house. Um, the pr- protector does, and it's this man named Wolftooth, and, um, they're greeted by this shotgun sticking through a hole in the broken glass. And you can kind of tell that that hole that the, the gun is sticking out of was, was probably made by another hole uh, uh, or another bullet, excuse me, um, from some other kind of battle or whatever. And we discover through this reacquaintance that um, between Buddy and Wolftooth that they are members or were members of the American Indian movement. And that they were also together at the Siege of Wounded Knee and also at the shootout at Oglala. And Wolftooth, um, he still lives um, on the site of the so-called incident that resulted in linear, uh, Leonard Peltier's imprisonment. And Buddy asks um, about Imogene and uh, Wolftooth invites everybody inside. So they all kind of go inside and they're, they're kind of sitting around together, just kind of, you know, getting caught up with one another. And we learn that Wolftooth and Imogene are, are desperate to leave um, Pine Ridge. Um, kind of a little bit of a historical uh, element is played here because he tells them about goon squads. Um, you know, there's there are these goon squads of the era and that um, they're still operating apparently um, and that they have been the targets of harassment. Uh, these goons like wrecked his machine shop and it put him out of business. And um, Imogene tells him that there's shootings constantly and the strip mine has poisoned the drinking water and that, you know, they're ready to to leave the res and and go back to Denver or go to Denver where her brother lives. And um, Filbert tells him, you know, like, hey, well, we're on on our way to Santa Fe. We drive right through Denver. And Wolf Tooth kind of perks up and he's kind of like, well, when can we leave? And Filbert says with a sly grin, you know, after the powwow, eh? Um, and Buddy doesn't really like this idea. Um, you know, he thinks that um, you know Wolf Tooth and, and Imogene should stay on the res and you know fight. But um, Imogene, you know, just kind of says like, "We're tired of fighting. Um, we feel like we're living in Belfast." Um, so uh, they all load up in the in protector and they head out to the uh, Pine Ridge Christmas Powwow and they're all together and they're doing you know powwow things like um, they're getting gravy and fry bread and they're, they're drinking hot coffee and they're, they're buying jewelry etc cetera, etc cetera. and the powwow takes place in a high school gymnasium which again is just perfect um, because nobody's dressed at all for the occasion but you do notice that buddy is now wearing a bone choker um, and he's also got his purple heart metal um, you know kind of woven through the, the front of the choker and when phil philbert sees this you know his face lights up and um he asks, you know buddy like what's the rosetta what is that and uh you know you know uh buddy tells him you know like this it's my purple my purple heart that that i got and just having these you know things on him now gives the audience its first real glimpse um into how buddy's character is starting to change because you know at first he resists you know any and all turns towards traditional uh cheyenne culture but now he's kind of participating um first with the singing and now he's got a bone choker on but uh the scene kind of goes on a little bit more and um filbert finds himself you know happily singing and drumming along um with the drum with the drum circle and um, Wolftooth and Imogene are suddenly accosted by this man named Bull Miller. And Bull Miller is the leader of that crooked uh, Pine Ridge goon squad that uh, Wolftooth had mentioned um, earlier at the house before they left. And of course, um, this is a, is a cause for Buddy to just you know break in and, and um, you know uh, stick his nose in, in their business and uh, get involved.
2: Merry Christmas. I hear you're leaving.
1: Yeah, thanks for destroying my shop, Miller. I didn't hear about that. What happened? Come on, Wolf. There's room for us in the bleachers. Come on.
2: you goons. You trampled my equipment. I don't like what you're saying Mr. Miller Good to see you again, man Do I know you? Wounded knee March 1st, 1973 Behind the bunker I tried to kick you in the balls But you don't have any So of course you wouldn't remember I guess that's it, huh? Get your hands up Let's go have a talk, Red Poe Just stick around, Bo. Next one might be lower. Let him go. Get out of town, Red Poe. All oh, you ain't sons of bitches are going to rot in prison. Just like your friend Peltier. <laughs> that was great, man. Yeah. Who threw that? Campbell.
0: Yeah, that sound that you heard um, was like a knife uh, that was thrown from the crowd off screen. And it st- duck like right in the padding you know like that blue padding they have around the walls uh, inside high school gyms so um, of course the crowd is scanned and um, we see Graham Green um, in a military coat uh, slowly kind of sitting down in the bleachers and Buddy pulls the knife out of the wall and he you know kind of heads up to to join his friend Uh, as he's doing that uh, Wolf kind of walks along with Filbert, um, talking about the man, um, who threw the knife. He tells him that, um, you know, that's Buddy's old friend Campbell back in Nam. Um, he said that he got captured and locked inside a tiger cage for 31 months. Um, and tells him that he was able to escape, but he had to slit four throats to do it. And because of that, you know, horrendous experience, he's stricken with some really serious mental issues in, uh, emotional anguish. Uh, the exposition here is, is kind of delivered a little clumsily, uh, but it attempts to explain to the audience, um, why Campbell, uh, Graham Greene's character, uh, stutters, uh, uh, severely and and weeps uncontrollably. So Graham Greene, let's talk about Graham Greene, baby. Uh, this guy nails it in everything I've seen him in. And this uh, cameo, which is like literally forty seconds probably, is no exception. He's portraying this stuttering Vietnam vet, uh, Campbell, and he's just heartbreakingly realistic and wonderful in this scene. Uh, I mean, you just through his his you know speech patterns and his, um, you know, kind of like I'm doing now, he's hard, to, hard getting out the words. You can just really feel, uh, the pain, um, and mental anguish that he's suffering. And like I said, he's only on screen for like 40 seconds, but he makes every one of those 40 seconds count. Uh, he's crying, um, you know, or not really crying, but he, he's kind of, you know, emotional when Buddy, um, walks up there and, uh, Buddy, you know, says, like, you know, hey, man, it's going to be okay. He's kind of like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, you know, you know, just trying to get him out of there. You know, like, hey, let's get out of here. Let's go have a smoke or something. And Campbell refuses. He's like, no, like, uh, I'll dance, let's dance. And Buddy tells him, you know, at this point, you know, like, how much he hates powwows and how he finds the idea behind them ludicrous. He says, uh, you know, like, look at these people dancing around a basketball court. You'd think a few lousy feathers and some beads was a culture. And these words inform the viewer that, you know, here's this man who resists uh, white corporate politics and the ways of the white man, but he also resists um, native traditional ceremonies um, and their contemporary um, adaptations, uh, you know, being powwow. So in this really highly charged emotional scene, uh, Campbell Crossley tells him like, no, Uh, he's gotten mean. And that kind of wakes Buddy up a little bit, you know, because Buddy's never really thought of himself as being mean, spirited, and it kind of comes as a shock to him. So he quietly, surprisingly, moves to the dance floor and he begins dancing. You know, once again, uh, like the scene in the river, he's kind of reluctantly doing it at first, uh, but soon he starts kind of finding his rhythm and then before you know it, he smiles, and so that, that's a really kind of refreshing, you know, moment in the film. But uh, speaking of Graham Greene, you know, talking about him, it's hard to think that he would take on a role like this because he's literally only on screen for maybe, you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt, 45 seconds, and uh, it was lost on me, like you know, like how, how could he, how could he do that? But you have to remember um, this movie comes out at least a full year before *Dances with Wolves* hit, so he wasn't this well-known actor uh, when this movie came out. In fact, he only had a handful of roles um, prior to this, so he's still kind of unknown. But you wouldn't know it by the the box art uh, because he's prominently displayed on it, and he's credited, you know, even above A Martinez uh, in the movie on the back of it. So, uh, kind of back to the movie here. Uh, we're next up in like this uh, juvenile hall. Uh, I guess that's what it is. It's kind of hard to tell. It looks like a foster facility for kids whose parents are in custody. I guess because um, it almost looks like a, like a daycare or like a rec room or something. And there's a bunch of kids and they're gathered around a television set and they're watching what looks to me like this Transformers Christmas special. I don't know if there is such a thing, but it looks. It's kind of looks what they're what it looks like they're watching. And uh, there's no adults in sight, uh, conveniently. And uh, you see Bonnie's kids um, that were in the Volvo earlier, Sky and Jane. And um, Sky actually is played by uh, Sky Seals, which is David Seals' real-life son. But uh, anyway, they kind of slip out the window uh, without ever being detected or not even noticed that they're gone and uh this scene feels a little tacked on and and really clumsy because like there's no way that happens in real life Uh, they just walk out a window uh only in movies uh they say but anyway the kids walk down this the sidewalk and um they're in the the middle of like these people lines of people like sitting and and crafting and um, it's like a bunch of uh, elders and uh, it's kind of confusing to me because there's no like context as to what this is. Um, it just exists because the film needs it to, I guess, that they need these, these elders um, out front. Um, it looks like they're like, like, I don't know. Like, I don't think I can kind of relate it to is like maybe like a, a, like a soup line or like a, um, something like that. Um you know, I'm not from the area. It could be that's just the way it is. Like Maybe there's these um, craft stations set up like a flea market or something outside. Uh, juvenile detention centers? I don't know. Like, maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, uh, I have no idea what it's supposed to be. But anyway, um, the kids approach this elder woman. She's threading popcorn um, on, on a string. And they ask her if they can have some of that popcorn to eat. And then we get this.
2: Are you an Indian? Yes. Our mommy's an Indian too. Oh, what kind? Indian.
1: Don't you know?
2: Can I have some money for a phone call?
1: Indians should know their ancestors.
2: Our mother's in jail. Could we please have our money now?
0: So, yeah, I got a you know, talk really quick about this scene, because it's, this scene is, is kind of powerful in a way, and I don't think it was even intended by the filmmakers. But uh, number one, for Crom's sake, that they don't even know what tribe they are. And to me, this scene is a prime example of how easily heritage and culture can slip away um, with just one generation. Uh, they know their mother's an Indian, but she said like, what tribe are you? I'm Indian. Um, you know, they don't, they don't know. Uh, I read something not too long ago, too, that, you know, and it's very true, you know, w- when we have our elders pass away, you know, that's our that's our culture, uh, our songs, our, our language, our, our uh, medicines, uh, you know, without those things, we're just Americans. We're just people. Uh, it's those things that's what make us uh, Native American and, um, you know, whatever tribe that we are. So uh, yeah, there's that. And then um, also we all get a kind of a slight callback to the trucker scene with, with Filbert. Because remember, um, he told Light Cloud that uh, he learned all about his culture from the stories told to him by his uncle Fred. And right now that's exactly what Bonnie's kids need. They, they need an uncle um, who can teach them um, who they are and, and where they come from. Because like I said, they don't know. They don't know those things and it's up to us to to pass those uh those things on to them there's also um the scene is a little bit longer and a little bit more extended in the book uh uh, where they incorporate a story uh the 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 kids uh, are talking to this woman and she kind of realizes that uh they don't have there's no adults around so she kind of asks them what their name are what their names are and you know they say more jane and sky and she was like a boy named sky and um, she's like you're not pueblo she says uh, a white man is more welcome in a pueblo lodge than an indian who has gone away a boy named sky is especially not welcome Um, a boy named sky is a dangerous boy she asked him you know there's a legend about sky city have you ever heard about it and of course sky says no I, i haven't and so this woman goes into this really um this you know detailed story um you know he was a shy boy uh who admired great things uh Well, let me me just, I'll actually just read it. (laughs) it may be easier, probably. She says, he's a shy boy who admired greatly the shyness of the deer he had seen running through the mountain forest. He dreamed of becoming a deer one day. He did not want to be a human being. So he decided he would no longer love his father, the sky, where he lived with his people. He would come to love his mother, the earth, where he would be pleased with all of her beauties. So he went down from Sky City and he ran away from his people and he became friends with the deer and he ran uh, all about the world with them. And one morning he woke up and found that he had turned into a deer himself, that he rubbed his antlers against the trees and he fought other stags for the honor of his mother and his sisters and his wives. And he was very happy. But the years passed and he was growing old and he was growing frightened of the women around him. He began to long for a glimpse of the sky once again through the trees. And so he ran and he ran, looking for the uh, the sky through the trees. And he ran and he ran, and he ran, looking for a way out, looking for a clearing in which the tree branches would not block out one last view of the sky that he had known once as a human being. He could not find a clearing, and he died. And then she stops and she says nothing more. And Sky just kind of sits there. I'm obviously confused and maybe a little frightened and, and stunned. And he just kind of says, well, "I got to go catch up with my sister." Um, so the old woman kind of ends this with like, "Bah! I can't talk to kids anymore." And so like, I really like that scene because to me, it's all about you know what this scene tried to do w- was talk about. You know, like, um, you know. Leaving behind the the things that make us uh, who we are and, and trying to blend in with who we are not um, for the for the enjoyment, uh, because that's what's expected of us from 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 those people. Anyway, I don't know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm thinking way too deeply about a scene that literally took, you know, <laughs> 30 seconds of screen time. But uh, long story short, uh, it's too late for that, they make a phone call, uh, back to the movie here, uh, the, the kids make a pay, they go to an old relic thing called a payphone, and they call uh, Aunt Rabbit, and they tell Rabbit uh, the location that they're stranded at, and before they go away, uh, run off, Skye uh, picks up the receiver and innocently asks.
2: Rabbit? What tribe for me and Jane?
0: Oof, I don't know. That just gets me every single time because it's such an innocent question that uh, that every child should know the answer to. I can tell you from my 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 experience, uh, you know, I, I tell my kids as many things as I can and try to pass on as much of this as I possibly can, because I'm not always going to be here. So uh, anyway, uh, back to the movie. <laughs> First thing, we got to make this clear. Uh, Rabbit is by no means these children's aunt, and she's aunt to them by name only. Um, I stated uh, in the book, you know, Rabbit it really is the only, is the one who got Bonnie mixed up in this whole thing to begin with, and that, that's basically her her role even in the book. But uh, back uh, on the on the road, uh, on the Powwow Highway, it's snowing something fierce, and Protector is barreling down the snow-blown road, much to the chagrin of the others. Uh, Filbert once again um, decides to pull off on the side of the road. Um, he says something like, "I think Fort Robinson is around here somewhere," and he wants to go scope it out. Uh, so he gets out of the car and he kind of begins lumbering towards the horizon line. I mean, he's just walking amongst this white landscape, and it's almost like a blizzard. There's just like this hard snow. I mean, uh, it's it's one of those whiteouts where you can't even tell the horizon from the sky. There's there's no horizon line. Cause it's just pure white and so uh he's kind of walking along and, and he sees this sign and that says uh fort robinson the cheyenne breakout uh, on september 9th uh, 1878 some 300 northern cheyenne under the leadership of chief dull knife began a trek from oklahoma to their homeland in the north 149 survived and were imprisoned at fort robinson and at this moment uh Phil, uh, Phil has another vision of what life must have been like um, on that trek. So again, uh, if you thought you were going to get away with, um, you know, the movie, just the movie review, uh, I'm so sorry, but I want to talk to you about the Cheyenne out, uh, the, yeah, I can't talk today. The Cheyenne outbreak um, that the sign is referring to. Uh, the northern Cheyenne tribe had been removed from their traditional home uh, to a reservation with their southern Cheyenne kinsmen, Uh, in Indian Territory, uh, later Oklahoma, in 1877. Uh, Fun fact, it's again Indian Territory, Um, it's not no longer Oklahoma, but anyway. uh, The following year, after suffering from poor food and disease, and having been denied permission to return north, more than 350 Cheyennes decided to break away from the reservation. Under the leadership of Chiefs Dullknife and Little Wolf, the group moved northward through Kansas. Several clashes with army troops and civilians occurred, with the Indians each time being able to um, elude capture. Eventually though, they were able to slip through a barricade along the Union Pacific Rail Line in Nebraska and resume their northernly uh, trek. Somewhere in Nebraska though, the group kind of got split up, they broke up. Uh, Little Wolf and his followers wanted to continue moving north and join the Lakota leader, Sitting Bull, um, who was in Canada at the time. Um, For the time being, though, they went into hiding in the vast sand hills. The second group, um, led by Dullknife, they decided to find refuge with another Lakota chief, Red Cloud, um, who was a friend of Dullknife. And with this in mind, they kind of set out for the Red Cloud agency. Unknown to Dullknife, however, Red Cloud and his people had been moved to the Dakota Territory, and when they got there, um, only soldiers um, were near the old agency. So uh, south of what's present-day um, Chadron, Nebraska, the Army Patrol intercepted Dullknife and his people, and, October, and, on, and on October 24, um, 1878, um, they were escorted um, into Fort Robinson. There was a total of 149 men, women, and children, and they were taken into custody and confined in the Calvary barracks. Initially, the Cheyennes were free to leave the barracks, though, as long as they were all present for evening roll call. They could sort of kind of come and go as they please. And several of the women were even employed at the fort, and this arrangement continued until December of, ni- of excuse me, 1878. But it was during this period that Dull Knife requested that the Cheyennes be allowed to either join Red Cloud at his agency uh, or remain in their former Northern Plains homeland. They didn't want to be there at Fort Robinson anymore. And attempts were also being made by some Kansas officials to extradite uh, some members of the group to stand trial for some alleged crimes that they had supposedly committed uh, during their flight through that state. Uh, Washington finally got a hold of it and they insisted, the officials in Washington insisted uh, on the return of the Cheyenne to Oklahoma, so they wanted them to, to, to be moved back to Oklahoma. But by late December, the Cheyennes were prisoners in the barracks and they were no longer allowed to come and go and the army was under orders to pressure them into returning south and the Cheyennes were equally determined to never go back to the southern reservation. In an effort to compel the Cheyennes into submission, uh, Captain Wessels, the commanding officer at the fort, refused to give them food or fuel. And by the night of January 9th, uh, 1879, the standoff had become um, a point of crisis and the Cheyennes broke out of the barracks um, with weapons they had hidden earlier. Um, They were used to shoot the guards and while some of the men um, held off the soldiers, The remaining Cheyennes fled in the dark. A running fight then ensued uh, along the White River Valley between the fleeing Cheyennes and the pursuing soldiers. At least 26 Cheyenne warriors were killed that night, and some 80 women and children were recaptured. Still, uh, those that remained free eluded the soldiers until January 22nd, um, when most were killed or taken prisoner at a camp on Antelope Creek, Uh, Just northwest of Fort Robinson, so all in all, 64 Native Americans and 11 soldiers lost their lives uh, during the protracted escape uh, escape attempt. Dull Knife and part of his family were among the few that managed to get away, and eventually uh, made their way to refuge with White Cloud. Um, So, in today's uh, current climate, um, you know, I feel that it's important for people to realize that this just wasn't an outbreak. It wasn't just like uh, some group of renegades fleeing for their lives. Uh, let's just call it what it is. It was, uh, it was a massacre, and I think that it should be uh, referred to as such. Back to the movie, though, Philbert um, takes in the words from the sign, and like I said, he kind of imagines that scene that I just described uh, kind of playing out, and just thinking about that, the very thought of, of what happened to uh, those men and women and children brings a tear to his eye. And, um, as he's getting ready to leave, he reaches down and picks up, um, like a little piece of ice, um, deciding that it's another token from the old ones and he holds it in his hand and he, again, reaches upwards toward the sky, you know, offering thanks. So the, the next day, uh, the car pulls into a gas station for a refuel and refreshments and Phil goes inside to order some cheeseburgers, some Miller High Life and hot coffee for everyone. Uh, while waiting on the grub, though, um, he touches this, the coat hanger antenna of this kind of malfunctioning black-and-white television set that's sitting on the counter um, where he's getting ready to pay. Uh, the picture on the television unscrambles just long enough for him to receive another inspirational, subversive vision of early Hollywood. Um, he's kind of watching this scene from an old silent movie, and there's this cowboy in full cowboy regalia. Um, He's using literal horsepower, um, you know, to pull down a jailhouse wall, uh, freeing his uh, captive friends inside. And, um, you know, we have this continuous theme uh, throughout the film of kind of this uh, blending of old ways and new, uh, once again, on full display here. But, uh, Philbert believes, you know, that mixing, uh, uh, old ways and new ways are, are in fact inseparable, uh, in, a, in living continually in, in a living, continually adapting, surviving tradition that that's, what's going to prevail. Um, I'm kind of getting a little ahead of myself here, so I guess let's just move on again. So once the food is sacked up, um uh, Imogene, Wolftooth, uh, Philbert and Buddy, they're all, they're all sitting on a picnic bench, uh, you know under this watchful shadows of these refinery smokestacks just sort of like you know farting these this you know brown black smoke into the air um and what's an otherwise just gorgeous uh mountainscape and filbert begins telling this story about uh, a trickster uh Weeho. and uh, i have to kind of play this this clip in its entirety
1: so with Theo the trickster Sometimes a man, sometimes an animal, but mostly he likes pulling antics and telling dirty jokes. One day, he saw some plums floating on the creek. Now, Weteo loves to eat. So, he reached for those plums, but they disappeared, and he fell into the creek. He crawled out, all soaking wet, and saw them plums again. Shimmering in the water. He kept diving and they kept disappearing. Three days later, his wife found him. Still splashing around. Woman! Oh, cried you During the day, juicy plums float in this magical spot. But at night, they go away. His wife screamed at him.
3: Stupid dog of a dog!
1: Those plums are still on the tree. Your world is full of a husband. Chasing shadows where the truth hangs over your head.
0: Then she hit him with a pan, took him home. (laughs) Man, isn't that awesome? That is awesome. Um, You know, every once in a while... um, I'm a school teacher. I'm sure you guys know that by now. I teach art. Um, But anyway, uh, every once in a while, um, I'll tell my students old traditional Muscogee stories from our elders. And um, we have a version of this story. And I told this one last year, actually. And when I finished, uh, I was shocked that the kids were like clapping and applauding um, me telling that story. And just looking out and and listening and and seeing that, um, it kind of got me choked up. you know, and, and I mention that because um, in this scene, as he's telling that story, he, he starts crying. It's like he believes so strongly in the old ways um, that, it, that it hurts his heart, that his fellow brothers have mm-hmm. kind of lost their way, and it's just a, a, a brilliant uh, scene, and um, it's completely juxtaposed with Buddy uh, cutting in and calling these stories fairy tales and Filbert kind of protests, you know, he says, like, these are the stories of our ancestors, and that's how they used to deal with problems. And, of course, Buddy takes issue with that statement because he kind of sees the stories as inadequate in dealing with problems of today. And I feel that uh, even the scene that takes place under these huge smokestacks kind of helped drive his point home a, a little bit.
2: Tell everybody fairy stories.
1: ...stories of our ancestors. All the old ones dealt with problems. Often the problems never change.
2: Nor the people. Oh, it's just too bad those stories don't tell us... ...how to keep our reservations from turning into sewers. What'd they do...
1: Look, Phil... to step on your show but white america ain't gonna hold off much longer man they, they're hungry they want our coal and our oil and our uranium and they're gonna take it wherever it is no they won't with you the trickster won't let them for with he is also the creator of the universe
0: so see what i'm saying like you have to see this movie um pay whatever you need to pay to see it it's such a good movie um but after that really heavy scene uh, the crew are finally arrive in denver to drop off wolf tooth and imaging and the neighborhood that they're driving through is sort of lined with these identical looking condos with you know neatly manicured lawns and the very sight of this you know colonization is just enough to make the bile rise in buddy's throat And he kind of starts busting Wolf's chops and giving him a hard time about leaving the res. And Wolf once again explains, like, uh, I just can't fight. It's not my fight anymore. I'm tired of doing it. I'm just emotionally and I'm physically exhausted. He says that it's time, but he's got to start putting his family first. He's got a a kid on the way. And he kind of tells Buddy, uh, you know, hey, man, you want to spend the rest of your life fighting? Then you need to move to Pine Ridge because, you know, I'm out of there. So the next morning, though, we're, we're back on the road, and uh, Buddy begins loading and messing with a pistol that um, kind of just shows up out of nowhere. And he's loading six bullets in the cylinder, and he goes to put the gun back in the glove box. And when he opens it, this spider kind of crawls out across his hand. Of course, that freaks him out, and Buddy tries to kill the spider, uh, but he's just way too nervy to do it. Um, Filbert stops, you're like, don't, don't do that uh, right before he smashes it and telling him, you know, the trickster takes many forms and they kind of start squabbling a little bit. And it's during that squabble though, that the gun is somehow broken. I'm not really sure how it works, but it's broken. It's like in two pieces. um, And that just enrages buddy. And Filbert tells him, you know, like, don't worry about it. Like we, it's, it's, it's a way that we're keeping our medicine good. And it's important that we keep our medicine good. And again, Buddy's frustrated and kind of looks, um, you know, very agitated, and as they're arguing on the side of the road, they kind of look up and they see the city lights of Santa Fe, and so they kind of have that moment of like, yeah, we're here, Uh, and then so there's that, (laughs) but uh, next up is we have uh, the blonde, the big beautiful blonde woman with cash in hand trying to bail out Bonnie. And uh, after a few words are exchanged, the lady, um, with the lady working the front desk, uh, she allows uh, Rabbit to speak to Bonnie. Uh, the two friends are reunited from behind jailhouse bars, and we learned through some dialogue um, that her name is Rabbit. And we also learned that um, due to the upcoming Christmas holiday, the, the woman said that uh, she'll take the money, but the, it won't be processed until after the weekend and, or until after the holidays. So she's just going to sit in jail until they, they get to it. And as they're talking, um, we hear a heated confrontation um, happening off screen. And the two women look up to see Buddy uh, being restrained by the police. And he's trying to get to Bonnie. Um, they're forcefully escorted to the door. Uh, and Filbert, before he walks out, kind of sees Bonnie. And he reassures her, like, you know, we'll be back. We'll, we'll be back. Um, on the way out the door, Philbert um, uh, says, you know, i got to use the restroom. And so he kind of goes down this metal stair railing, and he finds himself down this really dark corridor. And he's looking around corners, and he's kind of peeping high and low. And he kind of looks up, and he realizes he's in the evidence room, um, just conveniently left unlocked. And so he's kind of going into the evidence room, and he's pulling open these drawers that are kind of lined up against the, the, the hallway there, the, the walls and there's some tagged items, and he pulls open one of the, the drawers, and it's just full of money, like stacked bundles of cash. And Filbert uh, casually just kind of helps himself to a few stacks uh, of the money. Uh, what's interesting, though, is he doesn't take all of it. He just takes you know a couple of stacks when there's plenty of money there to, to be taken. But outside, while that's happening, um, Rabbit and Buddy introduce themselves to each other. And it's the classic back and forth of, you know, who's more incompetent than who and and who Bonnie loves more and and that kind of, you know, poppycock. And Rabbit tells Buddy that she's the only person in Bonnie's life that ever stood by her through thick and thin. And it is decided that everyone just needs a drink to calm down and think. And so we've got to talk a little bit about Rabbit. Um, because to me, the biggest flaw in this movie is her character because, um, you know, it's, it's probably plausible, uh, that Bonnie would have a friend, um, like rabbit that buddy describes her as a Texas twister, but she doesn't do anything to further the plot or this story. And in fact, I believe um, the sole reason that she's even in this movie at all is to provide precise clarification of the not gays. Uh, what I mean by that is like Amy Stryker's character in Legend of the Lone Ranger and um, the really odd relationship between um, uh, Lieutenant uh, Ahura and uh, Spock in uh, J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek movie, the character is sort of just shoehorned into the story as a love interest or a possible love interest for Buddy. Because um, prior to this, um, everybody's sexual orientation is firmly established. We have uh, Wolftooth. He's married to Imogene. And then in the in the flashback scene, it's hinted that Filbert, um, you know, has the hots for Bonnie. And uh, since Bonnie is his sister, you know, the only other character that, that Buddy is allowed to even have any kind of attraction for is, is Rabbit. So I guess the filmmakers felt that this movie needed more sex appeal. And so they throw her into these really painfully tight jeans and just like, like supercharge her sex drive. Uh, it's not to say that Amanda Weiss isn't good in this. I'm just saying that um, she's more of like a a caricature than like a real person. Um, And she's not given anything to do in the movie. She's just there. She doesn't do anything. And, uh, you know, given all the amazing portrayals of uh, real people in this film, her character, Rabbit, just, it sticks out like a really bad sore thumb. um But anyway, the three of them make their way to this local bar that really looks kind of like my grandma's old house uh, to start planning on how they're going to spring Bonnie from jail. And they're they're drinking and they're cutting up and they're kind of getting to know each other. And and Buddy lays his eyes on that rotten old uh, uh, Sandy Youngblood and uh, just wanting to know, like, why the heck is he even in Santa Fe to begin with? Uh, Of course, he goes over to confront him and uh rabbit at that point um tells phil like i got to go too because i got to go pick up and check on bonnie's kids and then filbert offers protector he's like i'll go get them you know uh, where are they at they're at the hotel and he just sort of takes off and he just kind of leaves the scene but then we kind of cut back to the to the this uh, uh confrontation between buddy and um, sammy Youngblood, and. Uh, there's some some tense words are kind of being thrown around, and then we got a bar fight, guys. There's a bar fight, uh, bar fight ensues, and once the melee is kind of cleared, uh, Rabbit and Buddy uh, kind of head outside, and um, we said like her her uh, sex drive is supercharged. Because she is impressed with the swagger and strong arm tactics of this powerful native man, and again, this is really cringy because um, she just all of a sudden has this newfound attraction, and it just stems from nothing. It, it's just, you know, just appears out of nowhere. Uh, it's just there, <laughs> and it's strong, boy. Uh, she's really eyeing him up and down like uh, he's like this exotic piece of meat. And um, she kind of even throws out the suggestion of uh, we should team up. And Buddy's like, no way. Uh, What she's even referring to, I have no idea. Uh, I can only hint at. But again, that's not my place. But uh, the meantime, Filbert has managed to swing by the hotel. And he scooped up Bonnie's kids. And uh, he immediately starts telling them all about medicine bundles um, being the male influence that these two kids so desperately need
1: do you see sky to be a warrior you must have a medicine bundle
2: so you won't get sick
1: different medicine sacred things that protect you from all harm four tokens that come to you in a special way
2: are you cheyenne
1: we are cheyenne not to me The awakening of the clear blue earth. I am Filbert now. But soon I will be Whirlwind Dreamer.
2: So who's this Uncle Buddy?
1: He is my best friend.
0: So yeah, once again, just perfect. Uh, Gary Farmer is just amazing in this. But uh, I guess Rabbit was so sexually charged up by the fisticuffs that her horniness made her completely forget about Filbert uh, picking up the kids. Because she and Buddy now are at the hotel and they're freaking out because they can't find them. And um, towards the end of the conversation, um, Rabbit tells him, you know, that, um, you know, her best friend and her money are both locked up in Santa Fe. And that she's not going to leave until both of them are out. Uh, sadly we're stuck with her for the rest of this movie Um, so with her uh, horny levels uh, dangerously rising she gives Buddy uh, another once over with her eyes and before saying something to the effect of uh, and I know that uh, I always get what I want or or something like that again it's just it makes me kind of puke in my mouth a bit but uh, Phil and the kids um, pull up behind the jailhouse in Protector her. And um, he tells the kids, uh, it's time to prepare for battle. And uh, uh, we're going to free the captive woman. Uh, the kids um, are on Philbert's shoulders. And kind of that call back to that silent movie that he saw. They have a rope. And they've tied the rope up between the bars on the, the jailhouse window. And he's got it tied to the axle of... Uh, uh, of protector um like I said just like that that silent movie that he saw in the in the diner or excuse me in the, in the gas station so cut to the inside of the of this police station we see federal agent novel and there's this local sheriff and they're kind of arguing about um how the red bow situation um should have been handled and uh, the moment is broken up, though, um, when Chief Joseph from the res uh, strolls in and he asks to speak to Bonnie. Um, he says, like, he's there on some tribal business and Bonnie Redbow is his business. Uh, it's, it's a very welcome change from the wise old chief uh, stereotype that Hollywood usually throws up on screen because uh, this Cheyenne tribal leader uh, is portrayed. Uh, he's very calm and, um, you know, just. Very cocksure, uh, like Philbert. Well, let me back that up a little bit. He's very calm, like Philbert, and he's very cocksure and savvy, like Buddy. Um, he's just—he looks like a man that knows how to get the job done. I mean, uh, you know, once he got wind of Bonnie's trouble, uh, he literally drove all the way uh, from Lame Deer to Santa Fe on his own. Um, and when the sheriff, uh, you know, asks him, "You know, have you ever seen a six-foot-four, three-hundred-pound Indian on your reservation?" He says, "No." Um, so it's clearly whose side he's on and why he's there. Uh, obviously, it's a lie, um, you know, but it's even more apparent that uh, that he's who he's there for when he looks out the window to see the scene of Filbert with the rope uh, on the jail bar windows and his foot mashed on the gas pedal. And he's just revving the horsepower of protector. Inside the car, Philbert's uh, uh, praying in Cheyenne and he's gassing the engine RPMs to just nearly blowing out the motor. And, um, you know, like I said, Chief Joseph's looking out the window and he sees this calamity, uh, but instead of saying something, he just kind of smiles and he leaves the jail and he decides that he's going to, I guess, follow the crew on their getaway because, uh, given it all he's got, just one final push towards victory just before the breaking point protector finally pulls the window off the jailhouse wall, causing this huge, you know, Kool-Aid man size hole in the wall and Bonnie escapes and she gets in protector and the squad, you know, safely speed away. Uh, but, but seeing and hearing that jailbreak catastrophe, uh, like these keystone cops moment with the cops all kind of running and banging into each other, trying to get into their cars. Uh, agent novel, um, is in in one car and and sandy's in one car and and the uh sergeant they're all in like one car or lieutenant whatever sheriff and uh protector though is is barreling down the road and they kind of swing by the hotel and they scoop up rabbit and, and uh buddy who's standing outside and they're kind of explaining to him what happened and rabbit jumps in, but buddy can't because he can't get the door open. It's stuck. And he tries to roll the window down. But again, uh, like earlier in the film, the old callback, it comes off in his hand. Um, so he's sort of standing, you know, dead center uh, in front uh, on main street. And there's like all these oncoming police cars, um, you know, just like barreling right for him. And buddy kind of goes like, go ahead, get out of here. And, uh, Philbert looks at him. He's like, "Buddy Redbo," you know, and then he like peels out and he speeds away, kind of leaving Buddy there. Uh, Buddy stands his ground and and he kind of goes, "Oh!" He kind of gives like this war cry, and he throws the glass, uh, the the side you know door glass at the lead chase car and it busts across the windshield, and that causes the car to flip over in the middle of Main Street. But the most shocking thing about this scene, though, is how the audience is just briefly allowed to share in Buddy's warrior vision of himself in the moment because um, he, when he jumps up to uh, throw the glass, he's immediately transformed to a, a Cheyenne warrior in full buckskin. Uh, you know, instead of glass, though, he's tossing a tomahawk in, like, again, this perfect juxtaposition for his character. And we're, uh, as, as an audience, we're allowed to witness that transformation. But the big rollover accident um, gives them just enough time for Buddy to load up in the back seat, and, you know, they speed away. The police, however, regroup, and they are once about, uh, once again back on the trail. And I kind of thought it was interesting the way the police sergeant barks to the Keystone cops how they need to cowboy up that that's what he says is like come on boys we got a cowboy up because that is the signal that we have clearly moved this movie from a comedy uh to from a to a drama to a buddy movie to a road trip movie and now we're in full Hollywood western with cowboys literally chasing Indians um then we cut to the lead car, and uh, Sandy Youngblood is in there, and Agent Noble is in there, and the Sheriff is in there. And they're pursuing the Protector up this really steep, sloping mountainside. And Protector is just barely crawling, and, and Buddy's, you know, like, hollering at Filbert, like, uh, you know, put it in low, like, uh, and all Filbert can say at this point is like, you know, I'm giving her all she's got, Captain, you know. Uh, she's just galloping as hard as he, as as he can. Um, To aid the getaway, though, um, the crew kind of drive past Chief Joseph's truck. And um, when Protector drives past him, um, he pulls out uh, and kind of follows behind just briefly. And then uh, ahead of the convoy, he opens up this cattle pen and it releases like all this livestock onto the road. And that interference um, is what's going to make them able to make it to Pueblo, because like I said, it's that's Indian land. And they believe that uh, they're going to be safe from federal agents and corporation employees and and local law enforcement, I guess. Um, So unable to move, though, the police are just kind of stuck amongst all this cattle kind of, you know, uh, mooing in the road. By this point, though, a Protector uh, has finally chugged to the top of the mountainside and then suddenly there's like this loud backfire and a spark ignites a fire uh, near the trunk of the car and Filbert uh, realizes also the brakes have uh, conveniently just given out as they begin to plummet downhill. Not knowing what to do, um, Bonnie, Rabbit, and all the kids bail out, um, you know, just right before it starts rolling, you know, downhill. And Buddy and Filbert are still in the car, and, um, you know, Filbert begins to kind of lose control uh, of the car. And Buddy's begging them, and like, Philbert, we got to get out here. We got to bail out. We got to bail out. But he just won't. He won't do it. He's not going to leave his pony and without the a second to waste, Buddy bails out, and as soon as he does, he watches the car sail off the road, and um, Filbert uh, is inside the car, and he's like, yee and he's riding this car as it just mercilessly, like, you know, just tumbles and crashes and clangs down the embankment, just losing parts and windshields and, you know, all these different things. He's car parts just flying off of it so it kind of settles into this embankment and then just kind of bursts into flames um, as all you know Hollywood car crashes end so the entire gang you know kind of walks up to see what's going on the cars and you know massive flames at this point and they're kind of huddled together and they're watching the car just just real burn intensely and they're all hollering for Filbert, and you can kind of see Buddy kind of starting, his e- eyes are kind of welling up, and, you know, he's kind of like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't believe this happened. Uh, and there's smoke, and, and, you know, there's this, you know, all these just crazy happenings. And um, as Redbo, uh, the Bow crew kind of mourns the loss, and they're just kind of holding each other crying. Filbert comes casually, like, hiking up the hillside, and he has the greatest line. He's just like... My pony threw me, and now it's dead. <laughs> it's so awesome, and in his hand is the final token of the quest. Uh, it's the door handle off protector. So elated to see him, they all embrace, and um, you know they, they head back out on the powwow highway. And Filbert, uh, before uh, they walk away, he presents the choker, the bone choker that Buddy had on him the night of the Christmas powwow. And is like, you know, I thought you might need this because it looks good on you. And uh, the two men embrace um, kind of having that full circle understanding of one another. And they kind of begin walking down the, the highway, uh, presumably to, to begin a new quest. And then the credits roll. And um, right as the credits begin to uh, fade out, uh, we see Chief Joseph pull up in his truck. And they all pile in and speed off to safety. And so, yeah, that's that's. Wow Highway, again, it's hands down one of my favorite native movies, if not one of my favorite movies of all time. It's definitely in my top five um, of all time, and uh, just, I just love, love this movie. So before we uh, wrap it up, though, a couple quick things. Uh, we, we got to talk about the Yanusa in the room, uh, and, and that is because um, I think it needs to be addressed because um, 10 years later, uh, almost – Ten years to the day, uh, there was a film released called Smoke Signals, and it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival. And this film, Smoke Signals, was also based on a uh, literary uh, reference. Um, It was a short story written by Sherman Alexie um, called This is What It Means to Save Phoenix, Arizona, And that was published in 1994. Um, I I guess we're still allowed to talk about Sherman Alexie. I don't know if we're still allowed to talk about him, but uh, we have to. (laughs) But anyway, um, there are some big differences between this story and the novel Powwow Highway, which was written by David Seals um, back in, uh, I think, 83. Um, But both um, thematically and cinematically these films are very similar and i felt that kind of that smoke signals borrowed very heavily um, from this movie Um, because like powwow highway um, smoke signals is a contemporary native buddy road trip movie Um, we have two indian men traveling together um, with very little money and like buddy uh, victor uh, is lean and he's athletic and he's good looking and he's assertive and then you have um thomas builds the fire and he's kind of like filbert um you know he's more connected to the culture Um, he seems very simple-minded sometimes um but you know instead of yearning to become a warrior he just wants to keep the culture alive through storytelling um and again filbert tells stories several stories in this movie as well um and if you ever had a chance to read the short story, uh, this is what it means. You know, Thomas agrees to loan Victor money um, on two conditions, you know, one that he, that he wants to go along and two, he's like, he tells Victor like, if just for once I want you to just listen to me when I'm telling a story. So, um, you know, Thomas um, is kind of used uh, by uh, the Victor character, kind of the way that Philbert that was used by the Buddy character. But uh, in both films, uh, the idea of this adapted, modern, uh, Indian uh, character um, learns to appreciate the feelings and outlooks of the other one. And like Pow Highway, it's kind of difficult to decide um, which genre that smoke signals belongs into. Um, I've seen it um, back in the day uh, at Blockbuster in the drama section. Um, I've also saw it in Western section. I saw it in comedy. Um, so it's kind of difficult to, to pinpoint, you know, what kind of film it is. It's everything and, and, and all of those um, just like Pow Wow Highway. But I adore both of the movies and I consider them both pinnacles in native film history. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of drawn to Pow Wow Highway more. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, like I said, Smoke Signals is, is, is an amazing film. But uh, wrapping it up here, we got to go through the cigar store groaners. Um, once again, if, if you don't know what that is, uh, groaners um, are kind of like those uh, emblematic, stereotypical, you know, native tropes that you commonly see in movies and television programs that feature indigenous characters uh, or themes or uh, storylines. I call them groaners because, like I said, each time I see one kind of on my screen, it's like, ah, typical. Like, I, I knew that was coming because it's it's one of the elements that's in, like, every native movie, um, and it kind of makes me groan. Maybe not with frustration, but just kind of like, ah, yeah, there it is. So maybe you have your own. I, I've compiled a list of 10 most common screen groaners. The first one is Drunk Indian. Um, was there a drunk Indian in this movie? The answer to that question is no. Uh, there are numerous scenes of Indians drinking, however, but there's none that are acting pathetically drunk or incoherent or, uh, you know, just acting like an ass. The other one is, or number two, is Does a lead character have a white best friend or girlfriend? Uh, no, um, unless you count Rabbit, but I don't really count her because she's literally in the. Th- last like 25 minutes of the movie and she does absolutely nothing she does nothing in this movie um this character could not even be in the film and you could edit her out and you would still the movie would play just fine like I said she's she does nothing in this movie so no I'm going to say no number three is there a medicine man or a shaman bonus points if one of the characters goes on like a spiritual journey I'm going to say kind of on that uh, because I do feel like Buddy and Phil's journey is a spiritual one, but it's not uh, in the way that it's typically portrayed with, like, you know, chants and hallucinogenic mind travels and, you know, with animals talking and shape-shifting and, you know, all of that poppycock. Uh, And there's no medicine man or shaman in this movie, so um, I'm going to say no on that is the antagonist white um or bonus points if he or she turns out to be the hero uh yes definitely that the feds are uh the enemy and and the crooked officers and that is number five is there a native turncoat or a native sellout absolutely yes Uh, sandy youngblood um, he's definitely working for the man in this movie Is there a bar fight? Absolutely there's a bar fight uh, between Sandy and Buddy. It's towards the end of the movie. Is there a mention of peyote or any kind of hallucinogenic drugs? No. Does any character use a racial name or do they get called anything inappropriate? No, they do not. Uh, Number nine, does a character receive an Indian name? Again, kind of, I guess, if you count Filbert giving himself the name World Wind Dreamer. But again, I don't really count that because it's not like, um, you know, I don't know. It's just you know what I'm talking about when you when you see that played out. But so I'm going to say no on that one. And number 10, was there a mention of a scalping? So, no, there was no mention of a scalping. So this movie ranks the lowest score yet. There's only two groans in this movie, only two. So that is, again, that is uh, high marks, high water marks. Um, This this movie is a 10 out of 10 for me. I I absolutely love uh, just about everything. And I'm not going to say it's it's without its flaws because it does. It has has some flaws. But um, this is definitely a 10 out of 10. Check it out, please. So, uh, wrapping it up, rewatching this movie. Uh, I haven't seen this movie in probably close to 10 years, probably. And it has been a lot of fun. And I was shocked to see that it, um, still holds up after all of these years. Uh, I mean, there's not a ton here that really dates the movie. Um, the soundtrack is, you know, still holds up and, uh, the images on screen still hold up. I mean, there's, they're not dressed in, you know, like late, or 80s clothing um, everything's still pretty relevant so like I said uh, does a pretty good job of that A. A. Martinez and Gary Farmer just um, are really the reasons why you need to see this movie just their connection and their uh, friendship um, it just feels real it feels uh, the the relationship between those two is is just the really the driving point of this movie Um, and again they just they do such an awesome job bringing these characters to life uh, not to say that this is a perfect movie, like I said, but, but again, it comes out, it comes really, really close. So if you are in the mood for a thinly veiled native theme Christmas movie, do yourself a favor, throw it in, uh, put the kids to bed, um, get yourself a, Tallboy tall boy Miller high life and, and, uh, some hot coffee and some, uh, fries and gravy and, and, and watch it. This movie will not disappoint you. So thank you guys very much. That is that is the episode. I'm going to be taking some time off. I got some family things I got to uh, deal with. I'm um, hoping to kind of regroup and, and do something um, maybe in the springtime. So in the meantime, if you're bored over the holiday break and you have nothing else to do, I have several episodes that are available, um, on iTunes, uh, podcast and Spotify, um, check out the Will Sampson story. I've had such an awesome, um, uh, show of, of love and support for that episode. And it's probably the most thing I'm most proud of for this, uh, uh, doing this whole podcast. So check that out. Um, You can also check out my buddy uh, Ian Allison's uh, podcast, uh, Native Film Talk. Do yourself a favor. Listen to that one. Um, Check out uh, Magnez's podcast. I was actually a a guest on his show as well. Uh, Support all Native podcasters if you can. Uh, Another good one that I'm thinking off, I'm just rattling these off the top of my head, is This Land. Podcast. It kind of tells the story of um, the McGirt trial that you've been hearing a lot about here recently, and uh, like I said, just do yourself a favor and support all Native artists out there, whether they're musicians or, or writers or artists. Uh, uh, support those those brothers and sisters out there. Uh, Merry Christmas! Thank you guys so much once again for, for tuning in. Um, prayers to all you guys out there that are battling sickness, and uh, wish you guys health and, uh, and a, a joyous holiday season. Merry Christmas, Mado.